0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we catch up on all the recent news, discuss recommendations for treating patients, staff, and family members in the new normal, get an update on the Paycheck Protection Program changes, discuss survey activity, discuss the future of ASC's post-COVID and some of the financial challenges that they will face with a panel discussion with Brian James and Tracy Chadwell with Intel Air.
1: This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Intelaire. Intelaire empowers healthcare organizations to elevate their clinical, operational, and financial performance with their GPO services, performance solutions, advisory, services, strategies, and programs. For more information, visit their website at intalair.com. That's I-N-T-A-L-E-R-E.com. Welcome to Episode 107 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June fifteenth, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me from our studio in Spencerport is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry.
0: Well, we're back in the studio. Mm -hmm. We are... Actually, doing a regular episode instead of a live episode, which means that you get to edit out all the the kerfluffles. <laughs> is that a word, kerfluffles? I don't
1: kerfuffles. know. If not, I'll just edit you'll edit that out. out. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's been a while since we've done. Yeah, just it's been a regular almost one.
0: two weeks. So uh, well, since we've done any episodes, and and we do recognize uh, to our our adoring audience out there, uh, (laughs) that we're running a little bit behind schedule. So we're going to start trying to get caught up. And quite frankly, the main reason for this is because we are just so busy right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our New York City facilities opened up um, last week uh, for elective procedures. And uh, you went on the road. You started on the road last week, Mm -hmm. actually. made your first trip out in three months, two and a half months, something like that. And I go out on Thursday myself, so... Um, and then I think by next week, we actually start having a somewhat regular schedule. We're not going to be on the road like as much as I was before because, mm-hmm. you know, right. so many things have changed, too. Now that we're using, um, uh, I hate to say the brand name, but Zoom yes. for just about <laughs> everything. I spend most of my day on Zoom for uh, various things yes, today. it seems
1: like it, doesn't it? But I, I think it works very well. I think sometimes people then focus in... And that this is the meeting time. It's just, yeah. it, it almost sometimes seems more efficient and, and more beneficial to everybody.
0: Yeah, and, and our Somebody. company, Ambiturial Healthcare Strategies, we have actually have a, a morning meeting, which mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately uh, goes on for way too long.
1: Yeah, um, some of that is people being lonely at home. I know. So sometimes
0: we're kind <laughs> of, Definitely.
1: sometimes it veers off a little bit.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we have a lot to cover today. I just want to talk a little bit about the structure of the episode. We're going to, um, for the first segment, one <laughs> we're in right now, we're going to talk about some up- updates on the news. In the second segment, we're going to have a panel discussion about ASCs and their financial future. We're going to have a discussion with uh, uh, two individuals from mental air. And uh, for the third segment, since there's not much to report in the way of conferences coming up, uh, we're going to uh, use that segment for talk about things going on in New York State and California. Uh-huh. And we have been very busy with virtual conferences as anybody that follows us knows we've uh, I can I've lost track of the number of them. We just finished up our last one for a while. In uh, On Friday, and that was a two-day uh, financial conference. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, in the process, I broke my brand-new camera. <laughs> well,
1: you didn't break your camera.
0: Well, I don't know. It wasn't working. I can't totally blame it on the puppy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it wasn't working. I moved it out of the mm-hmm. way, and then she tripped on it as she was walking out of the... The the place, And she feels very guilty about it. I know that. (laughs) But I I do think that uh, it wasn't working. I waited three months for that camera. So I'm kind of sad. So I'm back. Of course, you don't don't see us, but we use the, uh, our our, uh, podcast audience doesn't see us, but we use those cameras for the uh, virtual conferences. Um, And to that end, I just, uh, you know, we have a lot of virtual conferences uh, now that are out there that that might be useful to you. So I just wanted to kind of point to a couple of them that uh, uh, you might find helpful probably the, the most useful right now is the inf- infection control coordinator training session, which we recorded, I think that was back in April. And it's either for a new coordinator or for existing coordinators that de- need to demonstrate their uh, ongoing training. So if you are an infection control coordinator in a surgery center or if you have become appointed as an infection control coordinator, first of all, congratulations. And uh, you probably are going to need some training. Well, you do need some specific <clears throat> training that uh, to demonstrate to CMS or to to surveyors that you have been trained in Amatory uh, Surgery Center Infection Control. So it's a very reasonable price. Uh, the video, It's a video training now. It's a, a, I think a six hour training program that we did again in April. It's $199.99 and it's available on our website at ASCPodcast.com and remember, uh, now more than ever, surveyors are going to be looking for documented ASC specific training. So at the end of this training, you uh, provide us with the codes that are embedded in the training and we'll send you a certificate to, to indicate that you've uh, listened to the whole thing through. Mm-hmm. And when you uh, purchase access, you get access for six months. Uh, you can u- you listen to it an unlimited number of times, and it does come with the slides. You have to send me an email after you purchase it, uh, and then I'll uh, email you the slides for it. And at the end, as I said, you get a certificate that you can use uh, once you send the codes in, and it can be... Uh, what I'd recommend you do is you take the slides, you print the slides off, and then... Uh, the certificate that we send you and put it mm-hmm. into uh, your infection control binder to demonstrate that you've gone through the training. So, uh, and and the training was done by uh, I moderated the session, but it was done by my dear friend and uh, Ambitron Healthcare Strategies uh, Infection Control uh, Consultant Lori Rodricks. Uh, so it was very. I thought it was. Pretty entertaining, you know, mm. nice interaction. Yep, um, it was different than, it's not a webinar. That's the thing uh-huh. that you need to remember with uh, all of our, uh, virtual conferences is that there's, uh, there's humor. Sometimes a puppy shows up at that point. She was quite young. She's, she's grown up quite a bit since then, but, but just recognize that it's not your normal training. And that it means a little rough sometimes. Sometimes things go wrong during those, uh, those recordings, but I think that kind of give us a little bit of, uh, of uh, a live flavor. The second thing that you might want to look at is an in-service that we prepared last month the end of May for your staff on how to how to deal with COVID nineteen in the ASC stat- setting, and it can actually actually be used for our clients that are uh, office based surgery or some some of the clinics too. But uh, there definitely was a bit of a focus on surgery settings or procedural settings. Um, it is long; it's about six hours long, if I remember right, maybe five and a half hours. But it's very detailed training that you can use to demonstrate that you have updated your staff on how to deal with patients in the new normal. Uh, and you don't have to watch it all at once. Uh, you, again. It's uh, And by the way, this is $99.99. You can access it for six months an unlimited number of times. It also comes with the slides. And what I recommend you do is you kind of have it running perhaps in your uh, staff lounge and that way people can watch it as they go through. Because I'm sure instead of having lunch, people would love to uh, to listen to <laughs> to the this train. Sue's giving me this like, are you crazy look here. See, that's why I miss having the, oh, the, uh, the video here is people can't see the facial expressions that you lob <laughs> it's at probably me all just time. as well. <laughs> it's probably just as well. <laughs> so again, that's an in-service for staff on COVID-19. And uh, one of the things we're going to talk about in a few minutes uh, is that certainly that's going to be one of the things that uh, surveyors are going to be looking for is uh, demonstrated ongoing training. And I mean, ongoing training about COVID-19. And then we also did uh, a mandatory annual training program that was, I think, uh, mid-May. That's a a training that really doesn't have anything specifically to do with COVID-19 at all. Uh, It was training for all of your staff needs. Every year you know that you have to do mandatory training, and that comes in two flavors. One is uh, uh, training that uh, everybody has to go through and can be done for any surgery center, and then the other one is uh, is surgery center-specific stuff. So if you're doing an annual mandatory training, you're going to have both this generic stuff like, uh, HIPAA uh, OSHA bloodborne pathogens OSHA and uh you'll have to demonstrate that uh, they've been reminded of that, you know, through the training program. And that's that's what we prepared here. As I said, it doesn't have any of the ASC specific training, but the, it does take care of uh, at least probably about half of the mandatory annual training that you do. Uh, that price is also $99.99 and it can be accessed for six months. Also, unlimited number of times and comes with the slides. And we're going to be updating that one every year. And if you need a specific annual training for your for your staff, uh, just contact uh, me at 585-594-1167. And, and we'll arrange to have uh, training recorded for you. And then we have a couple other tra- uh, conferences that I'm not going to go into details here. We had the New World Conference, which was a two-day uh, conference, kind of similar to an in-person conference, uh, except it was all uh, recorded. Uh, a lot of fun, g- good topics, uh, about 14 credit hours, I believe, of uh, of AEUs. Uh, we just finished the Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Conference mm-hmm. last week, which will be available soon. I guess I better get to work on the uh, recording there. I feel like a, uh, a movie producer now because I, I have to use a, a program called iMovie, which is uh, mm-hmm. part of the the MAX. And, and I, I take all of the recordings, and I edit it, and I add music, mm-hmm. and I do all this great yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, you've gotten very good at
0: that. Yeah, I think, uh, do you think I, you I might be too. eligible for the uh, Academy Awards? Or? You never know. Yeah, yeah, I think you look good on the carpet there <laughs> if you're following me. Um, and then totally. there's the ASC Roadmap to Recovery. She was kind of skeptical there. Huh? <laughs> uh, uh, the ASC roadmap, roadmap to Recovery, which gives you an overview of what to do to prepare for the new world. And it's basically uh, for managers, kind of, uh, you know, how do you deal with this new normal, shall we say? We keep referring to that term, the new okay. normal. Um, and that's available. Again, all these things are available on our uh, website at ASCPodcast.com. I guess we haven't turned all of our camera or we, our cell we phones haven't? off. I, uh, I, I have, have not turned my... <laughs> I thought yours went a, off.
1: Of i Nope. We all yeah, have to remind John to turn off the
0: phone. <laughs> <laughs> and you also promised me that you're not going to be doing as much editing when you edit this uh, yep. at the end here. Yep. So maybe we'll get this out a little bit mm-hmm. sooner. This, actually, we recorded uh, the interview uh, last week. You know, mm-hmm. it's been taking us so a mm-hmm. while to get to this. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of the recent news. Maybe we'll just alternate on this one, Sue. So, the Ask a 2020 virtual conference and next expo is uh, July 9th and 10th. Uh, this replaces uh, Ask a 2020. Boy, I, I really missed that. That would have been a nice trip to Orlando. Uh, last month and uh, it'd be the first conference that I've missed well all of us missed uh, in 30 years this would have been my 30th year there Uh, for more than two decades ASCA's annual conferences remain the premier can't miss event for the ASC community and this year's virtual conference is no different just like ASCA's in-person events the ASCA 2020 virtual conference and expo offers nearly 50 educational sessions access to more than 100 exhibitors and unique virtual networking opportunities with hundreds of your peers Uh, go to ASC association.org for more information. I did two sessions. I recorded those sessions probably about three or four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I have to be there live. I think mine are on uh, July 9th. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you watch them, I'm sure everybody listening will be watching those. Um, And you can actually see me. So they did Mm -hmm. record me with my green screen. I don't remember what I put on in the background, (laughs) but it was kind of nice. And uh, you'll be able to uh, type in questions to me and I'll be answering those questions live by typing the answer back. Not as fun as actually answering in a person, but it's the best we can do right now.
1: Aska has produced a set of recommendations for COVID-19. Hopefully, people have kind of figured out by now that things are not going to go back to normal anytime soon.
0: Unfortunately, I not. Think all of the doctors have figured that out because we're already starting to see people. You know, some of the doctors saying not. You know, they're they're asking yeah. when uh, when this month am I am I going to mm-hmm. be back to my full volume? And yeah. we're trying to say there is there. no uh, there's no end in sight to this. Yeah.
1: So, ask us put together some notes about how to protect staff and patients and it probably will become the standard of care.
0: I think that's an important thing to remember here is remember that even uh, when when it doesn't, when something doesn't show up in the CMS regulations mm-hmm. uh, uh, or the uh, the interpretive guidelines or in the triple HC or the Joint Commission standards that doesn't mean that you aren't required to do them that, you know mm-hmm. if it is the standard of care that's one of the requirements yeah. for the standards is that if, it's, if it has become the standard of care uh, then you, you you can get cited for that so as yeah. you said there uh, there was uh, uh, some recommendations that they had so let's just go uh, through uh, these recommendations which are based on the CDC recommendations.
1: Okay, so to help ASCs protect patients and families, their surgical staff, and the U.S. population from COVID-19, ASCA is sharing some of the following recommendations. Um, Pre-screen all patients for symptoms or high-risk exposure prior to their visit, beginning at the physician's office and during any pre-admission phone calls or other remote methods. Inform the patient to call ahead and discuss the need to reschedule their appointment if they do develop symptoms of a respiratory infection or any of those other symptoms that we screen for. Right.
0: And by the way, uh, I'll include links in our show notes. Please look at the show notes after this one because there's going to be a lot of links in there Mm -hmm. uh, to both the Ask a recommendation, which uh, you don't have to be a member to access that, as well as the CDC recommendations. Uh, And then upon arrival, but prior to admission, patients should again be asked about a personal history of fever, sore throat, cough, or other respiratory symptoms and about similar symptoms in family members or close contacts. The body temperature of the patient should be checked upon arrival. And also, um, uh, ask also about contact with confirmed cases of COVID-19 or recent travel to a high-risk area. One thing we should note, be very careful here because uh, what we're recommending is that you actually don't write that temperature down on the log uh, when somebody comes in because that would probably be a violation of HIPAA. Mm-hmm. So, we recommend... It would
1: go on the patient's chart. It should
0: right? go... Right, right. I'm sorry. That's right. This is for patients. This is right. for right.
1: patients. But, it, but it's a good point to bring up, though. When you're with screening st- staff or visitors, right. you just want to check off in your log that, that they're below the required um, temperature. You don't want to put there the exact temperature or exact That's right. symptom. That's right. Um, and you want to prohibit individuals, including the patients, from entering the facility if they are experiencing elevated temperature or symptoms suggestive of COVID-19.
0: Uh, Keep patients and accompanying visitors separated by uh, three to six feet. By the way, it's the first time I've seen the three feet there. I thought I know, it was always six too. feet. I know, me too. I wonder if, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so uh, separated three to six feet apart during their time at the ASC. Provide supplies such as tissues, alcohol-based hand rub, and trash cans, and encourage frequent hand washing. If space is limited, ask patients and caregivers to wait in their cars until they are needed in the facility. If toys, reading materials, and other communal objects are located, remove them and, or, or clean them regularly. I can't imagine how you can clean I I just don't see that happening. I think, really, you're going to have to remove those things. So those poor children coming in are not going to have any toys to play with. But it's our new normal.
1: Um, All visitors, including vendors, should be actively assessed for fever and respiratory symptoms upon entry to the facility. If fever or respiratory symptoms are present, visitors should not be allowed entry into the facility. Determine the threshold at which screening of visitors entering the facility will be in- initiated and at what point screening will will escalate from passive, like a sign at the entrance to the center, to active, in other words, direct questioning to restrict visitors um, to the facility. If visitors are limited, encourage use of Alternative mechanisms for patient-visitor interaction, such as video call applications on cell phones or tablets. So maybe having people wait in the car or right, something. If and you can, and, you know, yeah. if you can do that.
0: Yeah, we know we have a lot of uh, urban uh, clients, and I know this is going to be they challenging. Just, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but we'll do what we have to do, and I, I mm-hmm. really think that that comment about vendors. First of all, I think this is a good excuse to make sure the vendors are not there. I've never mm-hmm. been a, a big fan <laughs> of having a lot yeah. of vendors in the surgery center, so now we can just say that they shouldn't be there, and I think a lot of vendors. Well, the problem is that vendors are trying to sell you stuff mm-hmm. when they're in the room. And uh, we just have to be very careful about that. We actually talked about that in the interview a little bit later mm-hmm. on.
1: And something that Jenna had brought up also is as it gets to be warmer out, you know, you may it may not be safe for people to sit in the car waiting yeah, for someone right. if they're you know, especially if they're elderly or something like that. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration.
0: Yeah, and I, t- I had recommend a lot of our uh, centers that are not in urban areas, you can probably pitch a tent outside or something in order to kind of put them underneath Certainly it. But, uh, and, of course, in your uh, waiting area, find ways to socially distance, try to mm-hmm. spread out the um, uh, the population and, and really carefully monitor pa- our or, uh, time patients coming in mm-hmm. too.
1: And part of this is just is letting people know this on the pre-appointment phone call phone because call. often people can yeah. get their own way there and they just, as long as they, as they know ahead of time, they can plan something.
0: Make sure appropriate personal protective equipment, PPE, gloves, mask, eye shield, goggles, face shields, and gowns is available and worn by healthcare providers based on their job description. Ensure that healthcare provider is educated and trained and has practiced the appropriate and correct use of PPE, including the removal of such equipment. Uh, and this is uh, really critical here again as we mentioned earlier we do have that training session for uh, COVID-19 which uh, I, I would literally just loop it and I, and I know you probably think I'm crazy but mm-hmm. you know be in the staff lounge just to kind of constantly have that that reminder out there there's just so much to remember and uh, I some of our clients have said I can't sit my employees down for six hours well don't do it all at once then just have it going in the background there and um, you know and uh, it, it is what we have to do in order to kind of get ourselves prepared or to, to deal with our new, our new normal.
1: I would want to caution you to be careful, though, because lunchtime, break time has to be work-free time. There are some really strong right. regulations for that. So, you know, if they have some downtime at work, but it's not their lunchtime, then that's the time. Yeah, I kind stand of corrected. That. Though,
0: I, again, it can be going, you know, like during a Break, break, breaks are. Uh, it's the lunchtime that true, is true. Uh, that that mm-hmm. you they ha- can't be doing anything mm-hmm. else. Uh, but during breaks they can. So if, you know, and there's a lot of uh, time in between procedures, and yeah. and maybe there's going to be downtime. Well, there is going to be downtime because yeah, of just the way say, hey, things are
1: going. Go, so. uh, go, take a listen to that. while right, while you've got a few minutes. And conservation and strategies for optimizing the supply of PPE is critical. Only essential personnel should be present. In all cases, strategies and options to optimize supplies of PPE can be found at a um, CDC website. We will put a link to that.
0: Right. And, and you know, unfortunately, this is a time frame where I'm, a, I'm afraid we're not going to be allowing, you know, mm-hmm. students coming in uh, during this time. I'm very sad about this because I, I feel so important that it's such an important thing for them mm-hmm. to be able to experience it. But at least until further notice, we just, we just can't risk that. Um, this is something I think that we've been talking about a, a little bit within the company is considering phone follow-up for all patients 7 to 14 days post-procedure to ask about the development of symptoms or a, or a diagnosis of COVID-19 and have contingency plans in place, including public health authority reporting when a positive result is confirmed. The facility should follow the advice of the public health authority on notifying other patients and families who may have been exposed to a patient or family member who subsequently is diagnosed with COVID-19. So this kind of happened to you last week. You were visiting one of our centers, and then afterward, mm-hmm. you found out that, or they found out mm-hmm. that uh, a, a family, family
1: member of an employee, yeah, had tested it was positive.
0: By the way, did you get the results back? I never even talked to you, so we're still waiting for those results. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, no, this is a common question because I think at least once a day I get a call from one of our many clients who have had uh, a positive result, uh, be it a patient or Mm -hmm. a family member, and they always, the same question is always asked, what do we do? The first thing you do is contact your local health department. Yeah, you're not responsible for reporting that a test came back. You are responsible for reporting when somebody in your facility has had that exposure, just Mm -hmm. like you've always had to with communicable diseases. So,
1: And conduct frequent educational meetings, including refresher training for staff regarding infection prevention and related precautionary practices. Staff should be screened per ASC policies that are consistent with public health guidance for symptoms of COVID-19. They should not come to work with symptoms and should contact their personal physician. And that's what we were speaking about a little bit earlier right. is that, you know, have that screening logs to to prove you're screening people every day yeah. and just have you know a, a column maybe that says under 100 or 100.4 whatever it is you're choosing and just check that off rather than writing in their actual temperature
0: and again maybe because we're an educational organization and that's what we do uh, with the AC podcast let's just continue to emphasize the importance of those frequent educational meetings and refresher training mm-hmm. have you this is uh, this is a time for your infection control coordinator to be actively involved in this we need to demonstrate by the way one of the things that surveyors I, I'll be asking more I, I'll start surveying again I think in July okay. one of the questions I'm going to be asking is you know how many hours per week are your is your infection control coordinator working on infection Control stuff, uh, and then also in their binder, there should be examples of the in services that they're doing. Again, you know, we've we prepared some tools for you, uh, you know, with the uh, the, the educational uh, in service that uh, that's available on ASCPodcast um, But uh, you really need to demonstrate that that person is not um, just occasionally doing stuff for infection control. They have to have an ongoing responsibility in that area.
1: And as you said, we'll be posting links. And the show notes. Um, And just a a couple points of interest. In the June 11th Outpatient Surgery magazine from AORN, according to researchers with COVID Surge Collaborative, during the 12-week peak of the pandemic, more than 4 million operations were canceled in the U.S. and more than 28.4 million worldwide. An AORN survey showed that the specialties with the highest case volumes as the country ramps up our general surgery, orthopedics, and urology, and this I thought was interesting, more than half of the survey respondents said that up to forty percent of their patients have canceled elective procedures. But surgery centers reported the lowest cancellation rates.
0: That is interesting. Yeah. Well, I think people are just afraid to be in hospitals now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of I mean, I, one of our employees, her husband, actually had a stroke, and uh, I, you know, the first question I had is you know, is he out of the hospital now? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I mean, obviously I wanted to be well, but mm-hmm. it's funny that I, I was they more... almost
1: are more afraid of being,
0: of in, being in a hospital. And around here,
1: we're not doing too badly, but right. still, there is that fear.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, that is interesting. And, yeah. I, you know, one of the concerns that I have coming out of this, too, is that the delays in, like in mm-hmm. the outpatient surgery centers, the delays in cancer screenings... Yes, um,
1: and cancer lo- treatments. And right. cancer I mean, that's treatments. I more hospital-based, but just...
0: And I just, I also know from my past history that a lot of our, you know, when I when I was running a surgery center here in Rochester, I had, you know, probably one transfer a month and the transfers were almost exclusively because the patient showed up with some type of a cardiac problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I ran an eye surgery center and and also did um, a GI procedure. So the patients were older, but, you know, one per month where a person would come in with a cardiac problem that we transferred to the hospital Mm -hmm. for a cardiac follow-up. And, uh, you know, again... I mean, I th- we did a great public service by getting that patient to the hospital, but, yeah. but I, I think people are withholding that. We also uh-huh. know that uh, from looking at the statistics that the two populations that are, uh, that are most endangered with COVID-19 are uh-huh. those with a cardiac history and those with obesity. Uh-huh. So, uh, again, if you, if you haven't gone through cardiac screening recently and have any symptoms at all, you, you really need to get in. Please don't hold off on yeah. that. I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in the future, uh, near future with regard to this lack of uh, oh. cancer screening uh, yeah. and uh, and cardiac, and screen. with
1: especially with cardiac things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: people are always in denial, you know? you know. And if you've got this added thing on top of not wanting to go to the hospital, it, it will be very easy for people just to say, you know, I'll, I'll get a yeah. check later. And sometimes you, you know, that's you I can't. I, I can't wait.
0: I, I will say one thing. people like myself, I don't know if I'm. I guess I am different, but you know, I mean, I'm taking my temperature three times a day. You know, you and I are both monitoring. You're a numbers
1: guy. <laughs> a right yeah, I'm a numbers guy. has got to graph it,
0: and and also because we know one of the other signings is mm-hmm. um, uh, blood uh, oxygen.
1: Yeah, low oxygen levels. So energy. yeah.
0: So we monitor each o- ourselves. You yeah. Know, uh, Two to three times a day on that, and we do take our blood pressure more frequently. I check mine a couple times a week. (laughs) (laughs) I got to graph it, (laughs) but I think I—I mean, I feel a little bit safer now, just having these this data uh, and knowing Mm -hmm. this. But and that's certainly not something I did before. But again, I'm concerned about you know the clients that we meet. Both Mm -hmm. you and I have elderly. Well, we have uh, uh, seasoned parents, mothers, and. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, you were very careful about that. You have another article. So, yep. yep.
1: Also in, in that same issue of Outpatient Surgery magazine, um, they were discussing the new or, or maybe renewed debate between CRNAs and anesthesiologists. So after CMS's recent temporary suspension of the requirement for physician supervision of CRNAs, which allowed nurse anesthetists to independently staff ICUs and ORs during the pandemic, the Association of Nurse Anesthetists or AANA requested Secretary Alex Azar to permanently remove those requirements. So,
0: just a little bit of background on this: uh, in only some states our CRNA is allowed to practice independently, which means that uh, uh, in most other in most states, a physician has to sign off on their pre-op assessment and supervise them during the procedure. I think everybody knows this, but during this um, uh, during the pandemic, they were allowed to, to practice independently. You know, now you know we're uh, That was a temporary suspension, so that's going to go back to where we were before unless uh, a permanent uh, uh, solution is derived from this. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that. We'll keep you informed uh, as to what's going on.
1: So just to finish that up, the AANA has been pushing to end physician supervision of CRNAs for decades, and they wrote, permanently removing these barriers will increase competition, network adequacy, and make much needed reforms to the healthcare system. So again, like you said, we'll
0: yeah, and I think one of the big then, you know. impacts is going to be on the rural areas where it's uh-huh. very difficult to get anesthesiologists. Well, I think it's difficult to see, get CRNAs out there too, true, but uh, uh, but definitely that could help. And you know, my experience with CRNAs has been very good generally. So uh, I'm, I'm I guess I'm pretty supportive of this myself.
1: And I saw a few articles giving kudos to the ASC industry, and I felt like we could all use a pat on the back right now. So um, in Becker's ASC review from June 9th, Dr. Shaquille Ahmed, the CEO of Atlas Surgical Group, discussed how two of the most important factors in healthcare, especially in the time of COVID 19, are costs and infection rates. And he pointed out that ASCs excel in both of those areas. Um, in the June 10th article from Fierce Healthcare, uh, written by Tom Scott, the CFO of HST, noted that hospitals can work with ASCs as they work through patient backlogs in elective surgery. They also noted the cost savings and reduced risk of infection. And this is a quote: "As we climb out of the um, out of this unprecedented crisis, health." systems can take a variety of steps to best utilize ASCs as partners in addressing the backlog of patient care efficiently and cost-effectively. This will help manage costs across the patient population, responsibly manage resources for careful planning, prioritization, and tracking and minimize patient risk exposure in hospitals, which I think are all good points. Mm -hmm. And an article in York Daily Record uh, written by Steve Groff MD, the founder of Orthopedic Spine and Sports Medicine and Pharmacy Health, focuses on the challenges facing surgery centers with the shutdowns and the reduced volumes due to the pandemic. So he's advocating for Congress to offer assistance to the ASC industry. And I'm just going to quote right from the article with this. Um, ASCs serve a critical function in the country's routine healthcare care operations. Under normal circumstances, These facilities provide an effective, lower-cost option for surgical procedures. Unsurprisingly, they have seen a sharp decrease in routine, scheduled, and elective surgeries. Many were among the first to donate PPE and equipment to hospitals to treat COVID-19, which I thought was a nice point. As the COVID-19 crisis subsides, ASCs will be an attractive option for patients that need a cost-effective location for medical procedures that they might be putting on hold. ASCs also hold the appeal of not being a hospital setting, reducing the risk of potential exposure. They can also help hospitals manage the expected surge in patients once they return to normal operations. So he feels Congress should be doing everything in its power to keep these centers open, but there's been little support for these vital facilities so far. Without relief, many ASCs will be closing their doors for good. We can't afford to lose ASCs, neither in the short or long term. Keeping their doors open during the current crisis will save lives. Making sure they're around when the crisis passes will ensure we can actually provide care and services to patients in the years ahead, losing either Capability would be disastrous, so I I felt like that was
0: yeah. And again, that's from good. the York Daily Record on June eighth. Yes, uh, and it yes. was titled Ambitory Surgery Centers Are Closing If Congress Doesn't Act, They Might Never Come Back." Mm-hmm. And that that is just Steve so Groff. true. Again, by Steve Groff, um, that is so true. I, I'm very worried about the future. I mean, uh-huh. I think uh, it, it can be very bright, you know, right now because we really have stepped up, and I think people are going to want to go away from. Uh, Hospitals are going to want to go to surgery centers, but the problem is, you know, financially, we're all small businesses. You know, look at our own company, for example. You know, we, we, you know, we're struggling during this time. We've expanded quite a bit during the time, but having the money, you know, we're a small family-owned business. Both Mm -hmm. the the podcast and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies are both small businesses, Um, so you know we suffer just like everybody else has during this time frame. So um I, I do hope something happens to step up and to that end uh the patient that the paycheck protection program the ppp uh uh did get revised on june 5th president trump signed the paycheck protection program flexibility act of 2020 and uh, these are the highlights so the uh, the the minimum maturity date for new PPP loans, those are loans uh, that were taken out after the initial one, uh, is now five years as compared to the two-year maturity rate previously mandated. And then the bill extended the covered period for use of the loan proceeds from June 30th. In other words, uh um, the deadline to December 31st, 2020 and extends the covered period for forgiveness from eight weeks following the origination date of the loan to the earlier of 24 weeks following the origination date of the PPP loan or December t- 31st, 2020. I think almost everybody's going to be that, that 24 weeks. So, so those of you that received the money originally, uh, you had eight weeks to use it up. Uh, and then any that was not used after the eight weeks, it, it, you didn't have to pay it back right away, but mm-hmm. you did have to pay it back and the rest would hopefully be, uh, forgiven. forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is helpful. We're, um, our company actually got the PPP funding. So just talk very briefly about that. We went through the eight weeks, uh, our eight weeks actually ends on Friday and I think we're going to have a little bit of money left over. Um, you know, we didn't uh, pay out all of that money in the, mm-hmm. um, in the payroll. So now we have, instead of just eight weeks to do it, we have 24 weeks, which will be good. So again, that's a big uh, change for you, uh, those of you that did uh, uh, open, uh, you know, bring your employees back during that eight-week period and if you didn't use it all. Uh, The bill also extends the time to rehire or readjust employee salaries in order to avoid a reduction in forgiveness from June 30th, 2020 to December 31st, 2020 also. And it also provides an exemption uh, to the reduction in forgiveness caused by the reduction of the full-time equivalent employees with the number of stipulations. I'm not going to go into those, but you can read that. And again, we'll give you a link on the website to some more information. The bill further provides that borrowers must use at least 60% of their loan proceeds for payroll to be eligible for forgiveness. Uh, Those of you that remember, and we've talked about this before, um, it used to be 75%. Therefore, they may use up to 40% of the loan amount for allowable non-payroll costs. By the way, this brings up an important point we should make is that uh, you really need to be listening to the most recent uh, podcast to yes. get the most up to date information.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And I don't, I, we haven't put that disclaimer anywhere, but I'll try to put it on the website. You, I mean, because yeah, things are yeah. just changing so rapidly.
1: Yeah, there is still some good information in some of the past ones, but right. always be aware of of the yeah. date that you're listening. In other words, and,
0: and listen to the podcast as soon as it time, comes constantly. out. <laughs> That's <Yes>. right, twenty four seven. The bill also extends the payment to fear. Uh, deferment period and finally the bill amends that the cares Act will allow employees employers to have uh, PPP loan forgiven uh, to also defer payment of their payroll taxes which is uh, previously uh, prohibited so a uh, lot of a uh, lot of changes there please keep up with that and again I'll put a, a link up there to the PPP reporting changes I, I don't want to talk about n95 mass but it's on our script here so do you want to talk about it <laughs> I guess we can talk about it together. You don't want to just shaking her head. None of us want to talk about, <laughs> None about it. None of us want to talk about it. I am really tired about it. We've talked about this a lot. There really is no change in the rules here. Uh, but I, I got another phone call today, somebody asking me uh, whether they needed to do fit testing. Yes, you need to do fit testing. Well, yeah. uh, so if you're using an N95 mask, if you have an N95 mask in your center, you need to do fit testing. You need to have a respiratory protection program. You need to do a health assessment at all the employees. Uh, and, and now, if you're open... Opening up for elective procedures, you need to have a steady supply, and recognize that if you are beginning to do elective surgery, as most of us are, Uh it is that expectation that you are not—you're doing it without any exceptions. In other words, you're not reusing masks or recycling them or having them redone. So, and once—which means that once you remove it, you replace it. Um, you could do, you know, there were some exceptions allowed where you could uh, use it for a week or you could run it through a, a sterilizer.
1: Right, yeah. Um,
0: but if you're uh, doing elective procedures now, you are no longer in that, those emergency times. So yeah. you should be uh, following the OSHA rules uh, verbatim. Uh, I think there's a lot of resources out there. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I'd say that every time I talk about them. Um, yeah. But I, I just cannot emphasize this enough. Mm-hmm. This, these are OSHA rules by the way. And, uh, violation of that could end up with five six figure uh, penalties and we know that OSHA by the way is out surveying sur- I'm, not, I'm not so sure about surgery centers yet mm-hmm. but, but they are surveying healthcare banks. organizations. Yeah. Let's uh, finish the segment by talking about surveys and uh, and their reopening plans. Triple hc uh, did announce on their website and again I'll have a link specifically to the section that they're going to begin uh, surveys they began them in uh, June I know that they're out actively looking for surveyors right now myself included and Lori we have uh, Uh, three surveyors right on our team. Triple H C will contact your organization if you have a lapsed accreditation due to a postponed survey. If you've submitted a completed application and accreditation is lapsed, submitted a completed application and scheduled survey was postponed and accreditation is not lapsed. Submitted, submitted a completed application and accreditation is not lapsed. Uh, pending intracycle activity due to, for example, an interim survey, a special survey, or annual attestation. So we actually have all of those situations going among our clients right now. So. Uh, We've seen a lot. I think in one day last week we had, uh, you know. Uh, eight or nine um, uh, letters from survey, uh, from the, uh, from Triple HC asking for an update on what's going on. So when contacted by Triple HC, be prepared to share the following information. Any updates regarding the impact of COVID-19 on your operations, for example, your closures, your hospital conversion. There were very few people that converted their surgery center to hospital. I think it was less than 15. Uh, updates on organizational profile and on changes to operations related to COVID-19, for example, change surgery days or hours of operations. And also staff. We've we've lost, unfortunately, a number. I mean, lost meaning that they've resigned uh-huh. a number of our, uh, our nurse administrators. So uh, this is this has been a difficult time. Any actual potential exposure of staff or patients to COVID nineteen, uh, confirmation of the availability of PPE for surveyors. So don't expect them to bring their own PPE. They're expecting you to provide it. Uh, for uh, organizations with an upcoming expiration date, you'll be required to have submitted a completed application before your expiration date in order to prevent a lapse in accreditation. Uh, and of course, 888C will continue, uh, both them and, and Joint Commission, which I'll talk about in a second, continue to uh, complete high-priority emergency surveys for all the Medicare-deemed status uh, centers and all non-Medicare-deemed status surveys, um, programs. And prioritized surveys include you know all the discretionary ones that address immediate jeopardy complaints Uh, Initial MDS or uh, Medicare deemed status or reaccreditation initial MDS surveys if seeking a new uh, CCN number. Uh, First-time accreditation, early option surveys, any revisits necessary to resolve current enforcement actions, and MDS or non-MDS reaccreditation surveys of organizations that have a history of immediate jeopardy related to infection controls. So get your applications in as soon as possible and, you know, go to their website for any more information. Surveys will be heavily focused on infection control and your response to the COVID-19 and your preparedness for future issues. Joint Commission's website also has information. Um, Regular surveys and uh, and reviews are are to resume during the month of June or resume during the month of June with some changes to protect the safety of, of everybody. And they state on their website they're committed to working closely with organizations with safety being the first and foremost priority as they begin to start that so they're really reviewing the way they do surveys so there's a lot of differences They uh, in the future so for example it can be limiting the number of individuals in group sessions uh, they're going to try to uh, uh, maximize the use of audio or video conference calls which can be integrated into the organization's uh, uh, survey program minimizing the number of people who accompany the surveyor on tracer activities using masks uh, will be a routine practice and we'll expect the organization to provide masks and other protective equipment just like Triple hc maximizing the use of uh, a technology to eliminate the number of people to sit uh, directly next to an individual for an extended period of time. For example, um, you know, conducting electronic medical record reviews using screen sharing or displaying or projecting the record. Other uh, examples include simulating activity if you're unable to enter a high-risk space and interviewing patients or staff by phone. Uh, driving in separate cars to off-site locations or home visits. Uh, that doesn't apply to us so much, but definitely they'll be using that separate cars. And this was interesting. They do say that their survey will focus on a thorough assessment, will not, but will not retroactively review compliance. The implementation of an organization's emergency operations plan will not be the focus of a return survey activity considering the centers for the CMS waivers and other extensions. Rather, they're going to work to understand how you have adapted to the pandemic and review your current practices to assure that you're providing safe care and working in a safe environment. Uh, so there's a lot of resources that are available on their website and I uh, really encourage you to go up there. Woo! that was a lot of information. It's probably the longest <laughs> first segment that we've uh, had in a long I time. Know. So let's That's take good. a short break and we'll come back and uh, discuss some of our thoughts about where we're heading uh, in the future uh, on the financial side and have a panel discussion.
3: Who is Intel Air and what is a GPO? Intel Air is a group purchasing organization or GPO. A GPO is a company that saves you money on the things you need to buy for your healthcare organization. We do that by using the buying power of thousands of providers of all types and sizes to negotiate better prices from suppliers, manufacturers, and distributors, allowing our members to obtain the right products at the very best price for virtually everything they buy. GPOs do not buy or sell products, we simply work with your current suppliers to get you the lowest possible prices on the items you already purchase. Our 100,000 plus members nationwide currently have access to more than 1,400 contracts. This means by joining, you can immediately use that buying power to start saving on items like medical supplies, equipment, pharmaceuticals, telehealth solutions, and more. Membership is free, and Intelaire's approach to helping our members enables you to determine how much you want to save. The more you connect with our GPO, the more you save, and it's very easy to get started. We have online resources that were designed with you in mind. We provide one-on-one support to get you up and running, connected, and implemented quickly. After that, we have ongoing customer support to help you on your journey to saving money. Besides saving you money, we also offer a variety of financial, operational, and clinical solutions. Every healthcare provider is different, so we have a wide breadth of options for you to choose from. So join us to start saving. Visit intelair.com or contact our friendly customer service team at 877-711-5600 today.
0: So welcome back, and Sue, you and I last week uh, we interviewed uh, Brian James and Tracy Chadwell mm-hmm. with Intolair about uh, the financial challenges that ASCs are going to face over the next year. And it was kind of a panel discussion. Uh, I noted you kind of dozed off when we started, you know, talking <laughs> dollars and cents here. Sue, Sue is a true nurse, where she would she knows the importance of it, but would rather not talk mm-hmm. about it. So uh, I do appreciate that. But it was a, it was a great, uh, wide ranging discussion. So let's listen to that interview now. Mm
1: -hmm. And in our focus segment, we're talking with Brian James and Tracy Chadwell with Intel Air about financial issues.
0: Uh, Welcome. It's great to to have you on a uh, recorded uh, podcast as opposed to the live podcast that we've been doing uh, quite a bit lately, and uh, to talk about a very important topic right now. How are we going to get through financially the rest of this year, and what types of financial challenges are we going to have? So, I I just wanted to like open this up for a a dialogue about what do you perceive to be uh, the uh, the challenges that the ACS will face over the next year. Uh, Both of you, of course, work on the um, supplier side of. ambulatory surgery centers, and you're in touch with your, uh, you know, centers on a regular basis. So I'm just kind of curious as to what types of uh, issues you are coming up.
4: Well, I think for a while, you know, certainly the first, you know, since March, you know, certainly it was PPE, you know, pretty much 24-7. You know, I think a lot of our members were just trying to keep their their staffs intact during the, uh, during the downtime, trying to be as productive so that when the Um, when things were opening back up, they would be better prepared for probably a, um, a very busy summer. And, you know, really the things that we're hearing about is just making sure they're geared up with their supplies to open up. And, you know, I think they're erring on the side of having too much versus not having enough. I think, and I don't know if there was even some, some built up, um, purchase is made, you know, maybe not by surgery centers, but I think there was a little bit of hoarding going on for yeah. a while. And I think, you know, that, that that's kind of a 2 edged sword because if you have, it can throw off your, certainly your expense line and your carrying cost if you have too much inventory and how to strike that balance.
0: Yeah, I actually bring up a very good point there now more than ever. I mean, I'm always talking about how important it is to maintain and do periodic physical inventory so that you know how much is laying in stock there as opposed to how much you've actually used up. When I do public speaking about finance and accounting, I'm always talking about the importance of keeping your inventory levels to the minimum that you need. Um, mm-hmm. and, and of course I'm rethinking that completely now. Uh, certainly we know that our PPE, we're going to have to get to different levels. So I'm just kind of curious as to uh, what, what the two of you th- feel, we should be, uh, looking at, uh, and what's reasonable. I mean, I don't, we don't want to encourage hoarding, but by the same token, we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're not prepared for the next situation that might occur.
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, and the other thing you're looking at, too, is space availability. So, you know, if you're carrying it at an inventory, where are you going to put it? So um, I think that contingency plans do need to be made. Some of the talk has been about going to reusables and having a plan behind that where they can maybe do that for a certain period of time is using reusables. Yeah. Um, Others are looking at ways to disinfect disinfect. disposable products and use it that way. And I've even heard some um, state um, ASC groups talking about kind of a stockpile for their group um, and purchasing that. I don't know exactly what logistics they've come up with as far as storage and that type of thing, but um, some of them were even discussing about that and then them, allowing them to have access to that stockpile should something like this happen again. So I think it's going to be determined by a lot of other logistical issues like subspace and, and where they could put it and then what's available. So, um, you know, I, I think to me what makes the most sense, especially for an ASC arena might be looking at um, like cloth gowns or something like that, going back to some of the reusable items that they can at least, it reduces the number they'd have to have on hand, but they definitely have to have a plan for the laundering and that type of thing too. So um, I I just think that's one viable option.
4: You know, I guess another thing to add just with my distribution background is a lot of times they, the distributors try to keep them to a, like maybe two day a week delivery. Um, I think that compounds the issue of trying to plan your inventory for upcoming procedures, you know they may want to ask their distributor just in the short term to increase their, their delivery days or the, the days that they could order and get it the next day because I think that sometimes they're kind of pushed into a corner to try to uh, plan too far ahead and maybe some more flexibility and terms and conditions where the distributors would help.
0: An idea just came up right now. What are you seeing with regard to pricing? I, I've noticed just, you know, personally, like, uh, uh, of course, grocery store uh, prices are a lot higher. Um, I don't have uh, a sense of uh, what's happening with regard to pricing. But are you seeing products costing more because of the types of issues that we've had to deal with over the last three months?
2: I would say yes. That there's issues from the pharmaceutical side as well as um, just the supply side. Um, depending on the availability of the raw materials um, for making them um, yeah. is probably the biggest driving factor. And so I, and I don't anticipate, I don't know if that'll last or what. We, um, One of the nice things about being part of a GPO is you do get some price protection. Now, again, with something like this, it doesn't always hold right. in an emergency situation. But um, that is kind of one of the things that, like I said, is the benefit of it. So we have a little bit more leverage, I guess you could say, with some of that. But we have gotten some notifications that there will be an increase in pricing in certain areas of PPE, um, specifically the gowns and the masks.
0: So there's been a lot of talk lately about shifting the uh, manufacturing from China to the United States. Uh, What areas do you think we're going to find uh, shortages in? I I mean, we know about the PPE, but uh, about other areas that, uh, that we should be keeping a very close eye on and making sure that we don't bring our inventory levels down too low?
2: I would think oxygen supplies, um, you know, the for oxygen delivery type really? um, issues and um, pharmaceuticals. Brian, what's what's your thoughts?
4: Yeah, you know, I guess this is where you know, again, back to distribution. I'm always gonna kinda go back there, but the your distributors certainly the, the breadth of products that they that they offer, um, you know, some have a, a stronger well-built out private label, which a lot of private labels made abroad as well. But having some, some flexibility, I guess, in, in comparable products, and I think the, the distributors that have a wider breadth of products can, I guess, help off, offset some of the shortages. They can they have more options, I guess, to go to. And you know I think um, this is probably where smaller distributors may struggle. Um, in this, during these times, because of their their lack of inventory or their lack of options, I guess, available to them.
0: So one of the things that I always talk about is uh, maintaining a, you know less than 30 days in inventory right now. I, I think mm-hmm. one of the questions that my audience might have is, okay, what is the proper number here? Okay, John, you know, forget about what you used to say in the past because you're trying to keep the cost low. Uh, now we're running the, the danger of not being able to do surgery if we don't keep those inventory levels at a certain level. Um, What do you think, in terms of the supply chain in particular, uh, would be an appropriate level for the average surgery center?
4: I I would say that, you know, I guess the more advanced um, facilities out there certainly are are adopting some sort of or have adopted some sort of kind of uh, materials management system that allows them to preference card um, and and kind of order per case. You know, Dr. Jones has you know 10 k uh 10 cases next week and, and really probably planning out in, in two week increments around you know but I, but i have a feeling they're not going to have as much consistency i guess in that scheduling so i think it's going to be very fluid i guess the um the demand for products and you know it's going to be tough to kind of predict how case flow is going to flow i guess in the future which probably having some sort of type of system to manage that would be uh would be most effective
2: yeah i think if you get a historical perspective on it to see what was being done in your normal average time and then being able to kind of extrapolate what you think the knee would be if you were having to use uh, ppe for that or have that equi- you know have things on hand um the other thing that is going to be important to do is define um what is considered as elective surgery so that again when you get pushed to something like this and you have to cut back you'll have that determination too of what would be considered elective and not appropriate to do at that time versus what would be considered emergent and get those numbers as well. So if you were to be able to continue in that capacity doing more emergent procedures, you would at least know what it looked like in the historically and what kind of um, supplies you needed to do that and keep those running. So I think it's gonna take a look back at what we used to do um, and then our response to several different scenarios and what would be needed in that case um, to determine what you know, would be a good reasonable number to have on hand for your PPE and other types of supplies.
0: And we have to be very careful here, too, because, uh, I, I, again, we want to avoid the hoarding to the point where you have so much inventory that it actually mm-hmm. – um, uh, Expires before you're able to use it for those items that uh, that do expire. Right. So uh, you're right, Tracy. I think being very careful with uh, counting, uh, with with looking forward. You know, uh, pull out that old Excel spreadsheet there and start uh, calculating some, uh, <laughs> doing some complex uh, calculations there, or uh, call your friendly uh, neighborhood consultant to uh, help you uh, put those projections <laughs> together. But you need to be very careful about this because yeah, you know it, there's just as much danger that you're going to end up stuck with an awful lot of uh, inventory and. and and doing a risk-reward thing. I mean, you might decide uh, that it's worthwhile for you to have higher inventories even if you are going to end up having to throw some stuff out uh, because the risk of not being able to do a surgery and the, and the cost of that might be so much higher. I mean, this is a completely different dynamic than we've had in the past here. It, and, and I think, you know, we, we have to think very inno- innovatively here and, and uh, be prepared well, for and a there, future that would include the, the same type of crisis that we've already gone through again.
4: There, there's probably and, a... A broad assumption, which probably is a bad assumption to make at times, is you know, is is most of the ASC industry using custom packs? I would assume that's kind of the standard protocol, you know, from a um, uh, facilitating, I guess, the um, to pick for for cases and whatnot. But I, I guess that would be almost a question out to the group: is is that is there facilities still out there picking separate items for procedures, or are they all? using custom packs, you know, as a a whole.
0: Well, and and again, you know, one of the dangers with the custom packs is you could end up with uh, a a bunch of products in there that have different uh, expiration Mm -hmm. dates. You know, you stock up and you have three months worth of supplies, half of those items might expire. And I'm just making those numbers up, but, you know, some of them will expire and you're going to have to take them apart anyway. Um, So custom packs are great as long as you're not buying custom packs in huge quantities to be able to get past, you know, to maintain an inventory of two or three months, I would think.
4: Yeah. and I think a lot of times they, the custom packs, they may not, and maybe they've learned the hard way is not to put too many things that do expire, yeah, you know, sure. in those and try to keep those separate. You know, I guess that's usually where the, again, the distributor slash pack manufacturer can help facilitate, you know, what's the, the optimal, you have to go through a pack redesign. They may, this may be a good time before they open up again is to review, you know, yeah. what they have in a pack, um, yeah. maybe a chance for them to, uh, to reevaluate that as well.
0: Let's just, uh, shift our focus a little bit to infection control. We know from uh, a regulatory standpoint, we know from a safety standpoint that infection control has never been more important than it, than it is today, uh, and, uh, Tracy, you and I have talked a little bit about some of the innovative products out there. Uh, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, So one thing, first of all, I, I think we need to warn people is be, be very leery of anything that you uh, are, are being sold uh, until it yep. becomes a proven technology. Just because somebody comes back and says, oh, this will solve all of your problems, don't go out and buy it. You and I were talking offline about... Um, uh, uh, about a lot of the UV stuff. And I know you're looking into and researching that a bit, but, uh, I am hoping nobody's gone out and bought the newest, uh, UV, uh, equipment, uh, just because somebody told them it was a good idea. A consultant, right? That's yeah, very right? true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you think we yeah, should be keeping true. an eye on out right now? And I know this is kind of a premature question. I know you're looking into it, but, uh, if you can just give us some uh, things to ki- kind of keep an eye on.
2: Well, um, I think what's going to be really, really important is it's kind of not necessarily always the new products, but look currently, again, ones that are approved are yeah, currently approved, because you may not have to go with anything new from a cleaning perspective. What is going to have to happen is that the... the um, the IFUs and the information for the actual products and equipment need to be updated because it says to not use products on stuff that's not recommended by manufacturer. So, um, you know, if you're changing products and looking at that, that definitely has to be something considered that you have to show at least that you've done some effort in in making sure that you're complying with manufacturer specifications. Um, I know there'll probably be some leeway with that, but that's going to be incredibly important. Um, some of this stuff is common sense. some of the stuff we've been doing for years. Um, we've just not always done it well or done yeah. it consistently um, but I, I think some of the bigger things is going to maybe look at air handling, um especially when we're looking at turns in the um in the oR and yeah. whether you have enough to um, your, your your system's able to um, accommodate what's required to not have an, an terribly increased turnover times those things are going to be incredibly important. And um, again, even just looking at workflow considerations um, that are going to be more effective for your employees and for your patients. So I don't, like you said, UVC is like, it seems to be the big buzzword and and what's going to be, you know, coming up with that. Um, And that's probably the biggest thing I've seen the other ones are more implementing different measures, you know, to accommodate um, or make, um, adjustments, I guess, for this new practices in our in our workflow, in our um, processes that we do, and how we do it, how often we do it, that type of thing. So I'm not seeing a terrible, I like from a perspective of actual products coming out, I'm not seeing a whole lot of anything new necessarily. They're all mm-hmm. trying to prove that they can kill this virus and the kill times and that kind of thing is what really needs to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I get emails like every day <laughs> about these products, and it is – mm-hmm. I, I pretty much put them into spam, but uh, – But I think we just be very careful about that, and and there is no replacement for really good, solid cleaning. You know, doing your hand hygiene, doing all those things that we should have been doing all along. But now we're doing, we're taking extra care and making sure uh, now more than ever that we're reading those IFUs so that we know exactly what those products are able to do, and then using them consistently. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things I think we should probably uh, warn our listeners about too: there are a lot of uh, fake products out there. you know, I, okay. I mean, I think if you're working through your friendly neighborhood GPO and your friendly neighborhood distributor, you probably don't have a danger, but uh, you know, be very careful about those emails that come in saying I can get you, uh, you know, ten million uh, uh, N95 masks for a dollar ninety-five. Um, you know, I, I mean, we literally ran into a situation recently where uh, somebody was given a 20-page cut sheet. I think we talked about it on a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. 20-page cut sheet for an N95 mask that on the second page, I could see there were ear loops on the N95. (laughs) And I said, it might say it's an Mm -hmm. N95, but nowhere in there did it say that it was a uh, NIOSH-approved product or an FDA-approved. So be very careful about that.
2: I've had some that actually said they had certificates and had a picture of the certificate, except that they don't award certificates. So you know,
0: that's actually what was happening on this one. Yeah, Yeah, that's what happened. There were there uh, were like five certificates that were attached to it. Oh wow!
2: Um, And and one of the things that's nice is you've seen a lot of professional organizations actually vetting out suppliers. I know that ARM did that. They went out and actually um, worked with another company and vetted suppliers out, and then posted the ones that they vetted out on their website. So that's another thing is to check with, you know, your state association or the national association, because they've been trying to help in that respect to right. kind of identify those, um, to, to give, again, give you a leg up. And then there's also like guidelines on how to vet out a supplier if you right. are doing it on your own. So those are resources that are available as well.
0: Great. Um, I, here's a, a question out of the blue. Uh, I've been approached, uh, recently. There's been a, an increase in the, um, in these uh, companies that uh, consolidate maintenance services and try to package it together, almost like an insurance policy, uh, have you seen this yet? Is that something that um, uh, that is included in your uh, GPO contracts at this point? And can you, uh, without speaking about any specific companies, is that something we should be looking for? Yes.
2: Um, actually, I started researching one recently. Yeah. Um, when on the HCP conference, I um, ran into a couple. And, and so that is something definitely looking into because they, like you said, they combine cleaning and, and equipment maintenance. And right. so it would be something to kind of have and they, they customize it to what your need is. So, um, And you know your price. Definitely mm-hmm. right. Right. You know your so. price
0: up front. So, so there's really no surprise uh, down the road. They're taking the risk rather than you taking the risk in terms of the total cost.
4: Yeah, and most of those programs are built off of where you really have the same service tax serving you. Right. You know, it's just someone kind of uh, putting under an umbrella, managing, again, like you said, the risk part of it, but um, certainly the same uh, level of service is provided.
0: Yeah. I think that's something we should keep our listeners up to date on as that uh, develops because that, that when, I, when I do financial projections, that's always one of the biggest line items is the maintenance well, that, contracts and maintenance expense.
4: That's what I've heard. Yeah, I heard it's probably in the top, you know, two probably in the in spend.
0: Um, I wanted to talk again, Tracy. You and I just before we started, we hit the record button here. We were talking about insurance, and uh, I think I mentioned that I just looked at my uh, my uh, auto insurance bill and saw the whopping twenty dollar rebate that I got for not driving for the past two months. Um, and I posed the question to you. And I don't know that we have an answer here, but you know, should we be talking to our malpractice insurance carrier? If we did weren't doing surgery for two months, you know, should we go back to them and say, uh, you know, should I get a rebate? Can I get a rebate for that, uh, or or should we just let them uh, pile up the profits during that uh, time frame?
2: I think, like what you said earlier, the thing is, is if people are going to be ramping up and performing more procedures than ever, is it going to balance out? Right. Are we going to see it, you know, increasing up? So. I think that might be the question, like you said, even if you have that and go talk with them or the discussion with them, and then maybe like you said, balance up at the end of the year and Mm -hmm. see what does happen if they're, if they're interested in looking at that to to see if there's those opportunities, you know, that I I think we should explore all possibilities.
0: Right. And uh, again, that, to the point, look at everything that's uh, going on in your operation here innovatively and try to figure out if there's some opportunities that you have before. And what, what we we're, uh, Tracy, and I are talking about is that at the end of the year, we'll know whether our volume is up or down, and then going back to the insurance company. And that could even be retrospective or prospective. You know, maybe you, you know, your future premium is going to be based upon the, your past uh, history there, at least for the next couple of years. So definitely asking them to revisit the volume uh, would be a, a good a strategy right now. Uh, any other comments before I ask you the last questions? Any any other areas that we should be looking at on uh, finance?
4: Well, I guess kind of along that line is you know not only malpractice insurance, but just it probably would be a good time to visit all the uh, I guess insurance products that that a facility yeah. may have. Thank if you. they have it all yeah. with one uh, one broker, it's certainly a, a time to evaluate. You know, maybe there's it's always good to go through, do I have the right coverage for the right price and, and doing some of that uh, due diligence and maybe this would be a good time to revisit all that.
0: Yeah. And if you don't have directors and officers liability coverage, I really recommend that uh, it might be too late, uh, but it, it's important to kind of get that coverage in, uh, in place uh, to, to protect the people that uh, make the, the big decisions here, especially if we're called on the carpet for some of the decision we made during the, uh, the, the pandemic. Um, and, get to know your contracts, um, so that you know, uh, what coverage you actually have out there and what the exclusions are.
2: I was going to say, I would also suggest, um, this is a great time to look at your business office practices and the possibility of automating, automating some of the practices that you're doing because, um, as things start up, and again, if you're increasing the number of patients that you're seeing, you're wanting to be able to get out your billing yeah. done quickly to get reimbursed to make up for that, um, also for what you've lost during this time, making sure and getting those things up to date. But if you have, if you take a look at your practice, make them more efficient, um, you will be able to hopefully recoup, you know, what you've lost in any additional gain that you're going to get from the increased scheduling. But like I said, an in, in automating service, you know, certain processes, having availability of patients being able to pay online, things making it easier yeah. for them as well. So that you can benefit, you know, from that, and because right now your business office is going to get slammed after a little while here, and also like your pre-certifications, yeah. being able to get those done in a more timely manner. So I, I think they're looking at the whole operation, you know, not just the clinical aspect is going to be very important for us right now.
0: Yeah, that actually brings up an interesting point. I just had a conversation yesterday with a company that uh, factors receivables. Uh, factoring means uh, that the company comes in and offers you uh, a discount uh, off the value of your. Uh, um, accounts receivable um and then takes the risk or some of the risk of the uh, of the collections there, and the the benefit is that you get quick cash coming in, and the the cost, of course, is that you're not getting your full receivable at the end. Um, but That's uh, acceleration, yeah. yeah. One of the the concepts that we had here is that many of the people, or one of the concerns that we've had is that uh, during the furloughing period, a lot of people were probably laid off, including people in the business office who might have been doing the billing or the follow up, uh, and they're going to be, as you said, Tracy, slammed. Uh, you know, just keeping current with all the new cases that are coming in. um, They might not have the time to go back or might not you know, m- might have mm-hmm. to focus on those things that they know they're going to collect as opposed to those things that might not be uh, uh, easy to collect. So this might be the time to, number one, think about factoring. And number two, think about bringing in outside resources to help you during this time to collect the back stuff. In other words, maybe, uh, you know, hire somebody that does the old stuff while you focus on the new stuff, which is uh, obviously a much more valuable thing. Mm-hmm. So again, kind of a one-time situation, but uh, think, thinking innovatively about ways to, sol- uh, to solve your business office problems is definitely a, a benefit. Brian, you and I talk an awful lot uh, all the time. Uh, I, I have a very long relationship with Intel Air and the the, the, uh, the former name uh, Marinette. I Won't even go into you know how many iterations we go back. Uh, but I, you know, I just really kind of want to emphasize the importance of maintaining a relationship with the GPO, whether it's Intel Air or somebody else. But but having that ongoing relationship, making sure that uh, they become your resource, and can we just talk a little bit about? The value that a GPO brings to the organization, you know, why you need to do it, and uh, and and what 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 the cost is, or I should say, the lack thereof uh, of a cost thereof. for being a
4: GPO. So, so the beauty about you know Interlayer and, and I can't speak for other GPOs is is there is no cost to become a member. Uh, the only the really only cost, I guess, or investment that you need to make is your time and engagement with your uh, either local rep or anyone within the uh, the gpu organization to you know typically we can't provide any sort of value to you until we we are provided data that allows us to analyze you know where we can benefit where we can help and you know that that two-way engagement certainly is is the key to the success of the the impact for the member uh, to realize you know the savings you know those that don't engage. There is no easy button in what we do, but certainly there's a huge benefit for those that do engage with us. And it really is taking that first step to, uh, you know, have a regular conversation with your GPO rep and, and making sure that, you know, you're asking the questions of how how else can you help me? Because um, I think that's where the magic happens with, uh, with our most valuable customers is that continued engagement.
0: Yeah, throughout this whole uh, coronavirus, uh, Brian and I have been talking regularly. So clearly, none of us were furloughed, uh, and of course, we were. Uh, we were. Uh dealing with some pretty important issues during this whole time. So the, the point being is that you might not have been able to get a hold of your distributor during the crisis, but you certainly should have been able to get a hold of your GPO and, and pre-planning for you know the, the recovery efforts. So hopefully that, that's an, uh, a service that was available to you. I'm still amazed the number of places I walk into that, first of all, might not even know that, that what the term GPO stands for. Uh, and and the value that comes from uh, working with a group purchasing organization. So again, I encourage all of our listeners to uh, to, to immediately look into it because they're really. I mean, you can be up and running no more than a week, right? I mean, it all depends upon how quickly you can sign those electronic documents um, <laughs> to get those good it's prices. Terrible. And and a lot of times, actually, most of the times, you're probably not going to be changing what you're getting. You know, you might be using the same distributor, just getting a price. You know, based upon a on a, a GPO contract as opposed to the price that you got that you negotiated on your own. and And honestly, sometimes you might be able to negotiate a better price than uh, the GPO was uh, able to do. I think it's somewhat rare, uh, but you know, but that is is possible. but but at least you have uh, you know the a GPO behind you or a, you know, a big organization behind you with a lot more purchasing power helping you through this process. And then uh, lastly, I just really want to point out the importance of that contact, that local contact with your GPO. Reaching out to them on an ongoing basis. You, as an administrator, need to make sure your purchasing people are constantly talking to them. Don't let the uh, the doctor's nephew um, sneak in and uh, give you that good price on that uh, product without checking with your GPO first to make sure that it really is a good price.
4: And, and we'll be the first to tell you that you know if, if you're getting a, a certain price and we can't you know beat that, you know certainly we'll be able to validate that. Right. You do have a good price, and there's really no need to change, right. at least on that particular contract.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, as always. Um, we'll have you on again, and I'm probably in a month, kind of check in and see how things are going as everybody ramps up again.
4: Great, thanks for Thank having
2: you. us. John. Thank you.
0: So we're uh, back for Part 3. Normally in this section, we spend a lot of time talking about upcoming events. Mm-hmm. Uh, there really aren't a lot of them, so we'll, yeah. we'll talk about those at the end. But um, at the beginning of this year, we did st- uh, start including in, in Part 3 state-specific information. So we're mm-hmm. going to give you an update on what's going on in New York. Uh, a lot of updates, actually a lot of updates just happened in the last 24, 48 hours. We're recording this on uh, Monday, uh, June 15th. So this, if you're listening to this on uh, Tuesday, June 16th, which I hope to have out there uh, means by I did then. A
1: Very quick editing job. job.
0: (laughs) Um, And then uh, we're also going to talk about California and and updates from uh, Casa. sent me an update. So uh, first of all, elective surgery in New York, all of New York is now open for elective surgery. And in order to do so, centers must follow uh, guidance that was provided by the Department of Health. Actually, uh, updated guidance was provided on Mm -hmm. Sunday night. So that guidance uh, actually included diagnostic and treatment centers uh, that are not ASCs that do procedures, as well as office-based surgery practices. So I know that most of our audience is ASCs. Some amateur surgery centers also are affiliated with office-based practices. So recognize that this guidance is for both. And we will post a link to the guidance.
1: New York patient COVID three- to five-day testing, the test period, may now be extended from three days to five days prior to the surgery or procedure. Test results should be received and reviewed before conducting the surgery or procedure. So that... that so,
0: yeah, good. just a little bit of background mm-hmm. there. As New York, in order to be able to do elective procedures, requires you to do uh, COVID testing. Uh, and that uh, originally the uh, the guidance was that it had to be for three days. It's not mm-hmm. so much guidance, it's required. Yeah. So, uh, But the guidance then expanded that to five days, saying that it uh, could take up to five days. And that's what we were finding is a lot of centers were having some... Really problems Mm -hmm. getting in within that three day period
1: yeah they wouldn't get the results back in time
0: right the only exception to the above would be for non-scheduled emergent procedures where testing prior to surgery may not be feasible or possible. In this case, a thorough screening of history should be taken as well as an appropriate precautions. A test should be performed as soon as possible, and if positive, may result in the need for a healthcare worker exposure protocols to be followed. So this is pretty serious, and, and we've had I've had some discussions today. I've had a pain management center come to me and say, you got to be kidding me. Uh, we're required to do uh, testing, and uh, this particular individual indicated that uh, they're not testing in their office, uh, doing these pain management procedures, mm-hmm. and I pointed out that the the guidance is pretty clear that you need to do it no, no matter where you're doing it. So um, this particular doctor is not happy at all. But I mean, it is the rules, and if you want to, you know, you want to remain with a license in New York State, you're going to have to follow them. So for healthcare uh, worker exposure protocols. Uh, you, you need to refer to the CDC guidance and uh, New York State Essential uh, Personnel Protocols. And that information is available on our website at ASCPodcast.com.
1: And for uh, N95s and PPE, they're clarifying that adequate PPE means that an ambulatory provider has at least a seven-day supply of PPE on hand. And the provider's supply chain can maintain that level to support outpatient surgeries and procedures without resorting to contingency or crisis capacity strategies. That's the important part there. Right.
0: And that's what we were talking about before, That mm-hmm. which means that you can't be uh, reusing, reusing them. You can't be uh, re-sterilizing them, mm-hmm. uh, as we had talked about quite a bit during uh, the last three months. So this means that if you're doing elective procedures and do not have enough PPE without doing reuse, extended use, or sterilization of it, then you should not be doing elective cases. And this means that when single-use PPE is removed or contaminated, it should be changed. So uh, this could really put a cramp on on your uh, future there. And then I did get an update from my friends over at the California Association of Surgery Centers. Um, As uh, this is what they stated on their website um, as we look to the future it's becoming clear each day that having our annual in-person conference in September will not serve our members and I'm quite sad about that because we always love going down there it's our excuse to to vacation (laughs) down in Newport (laughs) Newport. we have a place in Newport Beach
1: Yeah, it's a great conference too Yeah, it is a great
0: conference and I was really looking forward to it but uh, so they have uh, decided uh, not to do that the board head of CASA has made the decision to move quickly not waiting until September so they're going to be providing educational resources now to California ASC. So they're going to be launching a virtual series of ASC recovery, navigating the new normal. And these interactive webinars will take place on a regular basis, followed by a virtual breakout groups that, uh, that where you can discuss the topic and situations you're experiencing with your colleagues. And they realize that nothing can replace the dynamics of the conference, but they're excited to see the new opportunity to integrate technology and provide timely education. And the virtual series content is being pulled from the the uh, from a recent survey that the CASA did of its members. They, they what an incredible organization CASA is, by the way. They uh, they really do keep in touch. I think we get you know New York does the same thing uh, too, but they do daily you know communication with their members. If you're not a member of CASA and you're in California, if you're not a member of the New York State Association mm-hmm. in New York, uh, please join them. I'll put links to that up there too, yes. <laughs> uh, so that you can uh, become a member. Those organizations have really stepped up. And not that other states haven't, but uh, our largest uh, uh, listener base, by the way, originally we mentioned these is our largest listener base, comes from the most populous states in the country. Uh, And these are the states that I've had the most communication with. Uh, And we know that the information needs are are changing rapidly. Uh, So CASA are are hoping to give uh, uh, the ability to uh, quickly adapt to our members' uh, immediate needs. And I've been in touch with uh, Beth, uh, the executive director out there, uh, about uh, redoing one of the conferences I was going to do on, on finance out there, so we're yeah. we're working on that. In addition to their excellent education program, Cas has a history of connecting our ASCs to critical vendor partners. So uh, they want to continue that tradition, and in the next coming months, they're going to be putting together a fast-paced virtual vendor meetings to assist with these vital connections. So'd be very interested to see how that happens. we're We're having that same challenge in New York trying to figure out how to engage our vendor uh, members of the New York State Association with our membership. This is going to be a very quick uh, update on upcoming events, Um, so go ahead. (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations, or a few at this time, <laughs> are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC. And in this section, we highlight some upcoming events.
0: And I believe we only have two. <laughs> so, uh, But if you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ascpodcast.com. So uh, we will try to keep this updated. We haven't, uh, because things are changing so rapidly, mm. I only put two things in here that I know are going
1: on. Yeah. And obviously, 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 if there's something that you're looking at or you're interested in, just keep keep checking their website or call the place before you assume because a lot of places are going virtual or
0: postponing. And and another thing to to point out, too, is the ASC podcast with John Gailey is available. We do have the technology. We have a studio uh, to assist your state association, if you wish, in doing the virtual conference. There's no charge for that. So just uh, get in touch with me at uh, info at ASCPodcast.com or call me at 585-594-1167. We'll be glad to help out. All we ask, of course, is some recognition for uh, the podcast. Uh, To You know, we have this wonderful technology, this wonderful studio, albeit with one less camera. Uh, We have a puppy that we can throw on every once (laughs) in a while in order to lighten things up. But I think we've become very good about doing these virtual conferences, Mm -hmm. and we'd be glad
1: to make it available to everybody. So ASCA 2020 transitions to virtual conference and expo.
0: As we talked about earlier. Yep.
1: The ASCA 2020 virtual conference and expo scheduled for July 9th and 10th will offer the same quality education, networking, and resources as ASCA's in-person events, all from the safety and comfort of your home or office.
0: So for more information, go to ascassociation.com. And the Ohio State Association Conference uh, is still scheduled uh, live for September 30th through October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. Keep on in touch or you know, keep uh, uh, going to that website if you are in uh, Ohio to see uh, if there's any changes to that. We are signed up. I believe I'm doing a, a session out there, and we are going to be vendors there. So hopefully, well... I don't even know what to say. It's hard to say whether you know, things will be available for in-person events at that time. Of course, yeah. they're in the middle of the country, so a little bit different out there, but uh, still everything is up in the air. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. I do want to point out that I've made a number of uh, updates to our patron website, uh, included a, a lot of new content up there, including a respiratory protection program which available for no charge for, well, it's available for anybody that is a patron member uh, of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. So just uh, follow the links on our website and uh, you can become a member yourself. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Bornemann, Zach Calritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC podcast with John Galey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
1: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive r- resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved.